on this edition of Create the Village. In 2020, we should have been prepared to do digital learning. We shouldn't have been weeks after a stay-at-home order trying to assess who didn't have internet at home and who needed a device. And so it was just a mess. My name is Egbert Perry. I'm the CEO and founder of The Integral Group, a real estate company that focuses on creating value in cities and rebuilding the fabric of communities. This is Create the Village, a podcast about the intersection of public policy and community development. According to studies, as many as 6.6 million U.S. children from birth through the age of eight are currently on track for reading failure. A lifetime of consequences, both economic and social, await children who struggle with literacy and fall behind. Consequences, however, are created for all of us when an adult is unable to maximize her potential. Literacy is not necessarily a reflection on her intelligence, after all. Instead, it is at most a reflection of the system she's required to navigate. Ironically, In an interdependent, healthy society, when a system fails a child, it also fails itself in the long run. Literacy, that is the ability to read and write, and the consequential literacy gap, has taken on a new dimension. Digital. Digital literacy and digital illiteracy. For at least four decades, we've been living in the midst of a technological revolution. The speed at which technology is advancing is a challenge for all of us. And the speed and scope of the challenge is increasing. After all, think about how often you're required to upgrade your cell phone, laptop, or home Wi-Fi service. And give thought to the capital outlay for each of those upgrades. You know how difficult it is. Now imagine how difficult or even prohibitive it is for low-wage households. With a casual response to the so-called digital divide, we are structurally facilitating the digital illiteracy for millions of children. And by doing so, we're ensuring that census tracts will continue to predetermine who can function in an increasingly digital world and who cannot. It is not in anyone's best interest, I assure you, the child's, yours, mine, or for that matter, the country's interest to actively increase the social and economic limitations or even economic isolation of millions of people. That is, however, what's happening each and every day we fail to address the digital divide. Our guest this week is Autumn Glover. Autumn describes herself as an urban planner passionate about the intersection of race, place, and health. She holds a Master of City and Regional Planning and Master of Public Policy and Management from The Ohio State University. Currently, she serves in a dual role, one as President of Partners Achieving Community Transformation, the acronym PACT, and at the Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center. So, uh, Autumn, 
I want to encourage our listeners to read the piece that you recently co-authored. And um, obviously, we'll post it on our podcast. But why don't you tell the listeners where, the, where else they can find uh, your work? Great. Thank you so much for sharing this piece. I had the pleasure of co-authoring it with another place-based executive uh, nonprofit leader, Jacob Peters in New Orleans, Louisiana. But we recently wrote a blog post for the American Communities Project. So um, if your listeners want to check it out at AmericanCommunities.org, the title of the piece is called Keys to Shrinking the Digital Divide, Infrastructure, Devices, and Literacy. And we think it really kind of really pulls together just the most simple way of explaining how we can solve the digital divide, but also positions ourselves as place-based leaders to being really positioned well um, to respond to the needs of our communities and that we know our communities very well. So um, thank you so much for sharing it. Okay, thank you. Good. That's excellent. And you know, your, your piece was published recently in the Columbus CEO, I think it's called. Um, which is a business magazine in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and in the piece, you, you did something that I considered very different. You took a different take on a long-acknowledged problem that we call the digital divide. We've all heard that. Um, means different things to different people, but in the final analysis, we generally think we understand it. But explain for the audience, if you will, why and how this digital divide should be considered as more than just an economic or social issue, but instead a health issue. That's the different take that I'm talking about that may strike some people as odd, as an odd way, if you will, to look at this problem. Great. Thank you so much. Um, And I really appreciate you acknowledging the piece. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot this year and and considering kind of how are we actually positioning families to move forward and recognizing that the internet is not a luxury in 2020. And I think while there are many people who have researched, and I referenced Nicole Turner-Lee at Brookings in the article, but there are many people who have lobbied Congress, have talked about digital divide, have even deployed different solutions. And the challenge is that we haven't made it foundational. And so um, there are a number of things that I think are really critically important to really truly solving the digital divide is one, you know, identifying this as uh, a platform issue. At some point in our nation's history, we started regulating utilities. So gas and electric are regulated, but there is no regulation to the provision of broadband internet. And I do believe that access to the internet is a utility. And so that in and of itself presents an opportunity for us to explore the inequities. Um, when we think about health, I mean, certainly in and we will likely share um, in my bio, a huge part of my work is thinking about health as an entire being of who we are. So health isn't just one dimensional, it's not your access to care or your provider relationship, but it's all dimensions of your life. And so economic health and educational health, all of those things are really our lived experience, right? We don't live one thing at a time, we're complete humans. And so as we think about health, it's one very very literal. So um, certainly COVID-19 has elevated a focus on telehealth as an option. Um, and there are some people who, you know, many of us are privileged we wouldn't even bat an eye if someone told us we needed to hop on a Zoom 
call to um, interact with a provider or, or something of that nature. But there were many people who completely missed the boat. I mean, they had no context to this as an option. Um, and, you know, with stay at home orders in various regions of the country and just the inability to get to where you need to go, I think it's incredibly important and essential for us to think about how do we get everybody out of line physically and online. Um, and so there are many dimensions to this issue and I'm you know, more than happy to talk about them, but the, the core of that is somebody needs to wake up and think about it every day. And in Columbus, and the reason why I positioned this article in our business magazine is that it is not currently anyone's job. As you all know, typically the chief information officer of a, a municipality or even a corporate organization their focus is really internally facing. They're thinking about, you know, making sure when the mayor walks in his office, his computer turns on. But there isn't anyone who wakes up and, and thinks about, does everyone have the access to the internet that they need? And so it is absolutely critical for people to grow and achieve the American dream that they have access to the internet. And nobody would question if everybody deserved warning water and electricity and gas in their home. And so I really urge us all to think we shouldn't be questioning if affordable and effective internet in every household um, is a requirement, because I truly believe that it is. So you're, you're making the case that leads into um, the next question that's in my mind. You titled your piece, Moonshot Idea, Closing the Digital Divide. And I'm understanding it now. Um, this is not, you know, when I think of a moonshot, it's usually involves some kind of radical solution to a huge problem using disruptive technology or a disruptive process or procedure and so on. As a society, what do you believe we need to call on radical solutions or why do you believe we need to call on radical solutions when this is not really a new problem, it's certainly not an undefined problem. We've all heard of the digital divide for 15 years, maybe 20 years, but let's say 15 years. But why do you believe we need to call on radical solutions? Yeah, I think we need these radical solutions because our economy is continuing to evolve. And I think COVID has sped it up. Uh, many, especially from a corporate perspective, um, have realized that, wait, we can do our work at home, but there are people in our society who aren't prepared for those opportunities and don't have the resources to take advantage of them. And so the time is now for that radical change. I'm not really thinking about, you know, 5G, 3G, 25G. It's not about that. It's really about the way our society functions. And the more that our society goes online, the more that disparity will grow. Um, I think one of the things that is just incredibly important for us to consider is why have we continued to have this conversation? A huge part of it is in the policy space. Um, so the FCC does not regulate broadband access. And so it is largely driven by kind of the competition of ISPs to provide uh, the provision of internet. And they really have left it to them to compete for that business. But what we see, and I'll give, um, you know, an example in our neighborhood, you know, they are, these ISPs are making millions of dollars a year on a limited number of adopters. If everybody adopted, their bottom line would increase. But the challenge is that people don't adopt because it's not regulated. And so the pricing is not based on any affordability. One of the issues that I really want to explore is 
why don't we either either regulate it or why don't we have a standard thought around how much it should cost? I mean, it's widely accepted that, you know, people shouldn't spend more than 25 to 30 percent of their income on housing. We should also have that thought around what these other utilities should cost people, recognizing that they're essential to life. Okay, so I I get that. And certainly you're not the only one that's thinking like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So why is it that solving this problem is viewed by some people as a nice to have? It would be really nice to have everybody have access um, when it's such a stark contrast from your view that this is an imperative. We we need to do this. So why why are we that disconnected in our views that some people are still seeing this as an optional thing? I think people of privilege see it as a luxury um, because we're all paying, you know, whatever provider we have in our home every month for our internet service. I think if we stepped up um, both at the congressional level, but even our local communities and made it a requirement, the tone of the conversation would change. This isn't a fancy haircut. This is a platform that I need to work, to educate myself, to participate in telehealth. And even I think it's important to acknowledge the social benefit of the internet. Having access to LinkedIn and other social platforms, Zoom for civic meetings and even connecting with your family. We just have decided for some people in our community that they're not deserving of these resources. And so I really just think it it will require a shift in conversation, which I think that shift is only going to happen when someone is focusing on it. Um, day to day. So every community should have a broadband or digital divide um, focus entity or commission. And that is a big thing. You know, we're we're talking about funding something that's, uh, you know, cross sector. Um, so not just municipal governments, but the business and corporate community and, and all of those in between should really be having conversation about what would change. I mean, we talk a lot about um, what happened to the American dream. It went online. That's what happened, you know, and so we really need to think about how do we help people get online with us? I mean, the other thing, too, is we can't talk about having an unprepared workforce if they can't access that preparation. And much of that preparation is happening online, especially during a pandemic. And and certainly I'll, I'll say for us in the, in the local community, we were so woefully unprepared for this moment in, in many dimensions, but certainly to help families get what they needed in a, an environment where they shouldn't be um, leaving their homes for their safety. So I just think it's time for us to change the lexicon. Stop talking about it as a service that you pay for and talk about it as a utility. Again, I use the water example. You would look at me like I was crazy if I told you I was building a new development and we didn't have running water coming into the building. And we should think about the internet I think in the same way. Okay, so you have me thinking thoughts I haven't had, notwithstanding that we've been in COVID now for, what is it, eight months? Probably eight, yeah, almost eight or nine months. And so you use COVID-19 as a frame for your piece, and you addressed how you saw the pandemic adding additional stress to low-wage families. And in fact, you went as far as to say, and I quote, some children stopped learning when COVID-19 froze every household in their economic class. And when I read that, that line reminded me 
Um, some months ago, I had a discussion with a guest on, on uh, my podcast uh, regarding the impact of the pandemic on education. And the guest was uh, Duke University's Dr. Harris Cooper. And I asked him, who are the losers as a result of the current COVID-19 crisis? And that's strictly looking through an education lens. And are there any winners? And his response was telling and was pointed. He said, the winners are the people who already won. And so do you at least agree with that sentiment? And if so, what are we? That is the broad we, government, nonprofits, universities, healthcare providers, private industry. What are we saying to low-wage families? And likewise, what are we saying to ourselves? I mean, I absolutely agree with that sentiment. I would think in 2020, we should have been prepared to do digital learning. We shouldn't have been weeks after a stay-at-home order trying to assess who didn't have internet at home and who needed a device. And so it was just a mess. And what happened, the greatest losers were the kids. The kids who not only did they not already have the provision, but once they got it, they had to learn how to use it. And so, you know, fast forward, now we're in school. So, yes, I absolutely um, agree with the colleague at Duke that there were some people who were prepared, but many were not. And those who were not were black and brown families across our region and really across our country. And, you know, our American Communities Progress blog talked about these three essential elements as being a part of the solution. So it's affordable and effective internet, it's the devices, so I think you're absolutely right, but it's also the literacy. So we gotta think about, there are people in our communities who haven't had access to these resources besides popping into the library to fill out an application or doing something assisted, maybe in a you know job and family services office or something like that, but really having that domain knowledge to navigate the internet is important. So. But also, I have to imagine, and I'm pretty involved with ULI here locally in Columbus, that real estate development is going to change, right? So I don't know that we're going to be building large call centers. Now that we've proven we can work from home, that will probably be a part of our model. And people can't work from home and their kids can't do hybrid learning if they don't have high speed effective internet. So I think there is a business case. Um, and certainly there's savings and, and profit opportunity. We know that there are millions of people who do not have access in their home, which means there's millions of dollars lost by all of these ISPs. These are their potential customers. And so it is imperative for them to engage in this conversation. I will say our work at PACT and the way we've approached it is really leaning into what we're good at. So we are incredibly good at community engagement and we lead all of our work with community engagement. And so we spent this summer, I hired local residents to go door to door and do a survey that I actually will write about and publish about but what we found out is on average, people in our neighborhood said, if I could get affordable and effective internet for $25 a month, I could afford that. If you're not already familiar, most, most of our national ISPs, their low income rate is $49.95. That's a huge jump. And so again, we're missing those adoptions. We also ask people, 
you know, kind of what is your use of the internet? And many people shared that they don't use the internet either because they don't think it's essential, which means we really have people who are behind. We also heard from people that they're afraid of it, that crazy and scary things happen online. And that I really would put under the bucket of literacy. We've got to teach people. So um, we are um, here at PACT in Columbus, we're doing all three streams of that work. So we're working on a pilot project to introduce a new internet technology in our neighborhood that will offer to between 100 and 200 households at $15 a month as a pilot. We're leveraging CARES Act money at the local level to make that happen. And I'm very grateful um, for our municipality for trusting us to test this. But that provider is also gonna learn some things. They're gonna learn about this population that they're not already serving. And so there's mutual benefit there. I can help with that adoption because I'm investing in door-to-door -door relationships. I mean, we, again, pay people. They were out with PPE and iPads and having these conversations at the household level. We've also been purchasing and we're very grateful um, for our connection to The Ohio State University because we're leveraging that purchasing power, which is something that corporate communities should be doing. You're buying devices at mass, so buy a few more and place them in places in different communities. We're distributing devices at the household level because I believe that people deserve to own their own device. I'm not loaning anybody equipment. That completely lacks dignity. And truly, who has time to track loaned equipment, right? So I'm giving it to you, but we're also benefiting from literacy services that we've already created for our students and a lot of, you know, different people in our university community. And so we're providing that literacy. We're working on an opportunity to have a place-based community literacy uh, project called the Columbus Rising Project, which I mentioned in the CEO article, um, because we also know that it, this is tough, right? I mean, my mom is multiple degrees and, you know, she is always calling and asking me her to talk her through things. And um, it's difficult to navigate different platforms. And, and we know that that learning has to be both culturally sensitive and appropriate, but it also needs to be in the different languages that people may speak. And again, I think that happens best at the place-based level. I'm not sure you could deploy that. So all of these things I think have to happen at the same time, internet, devices, literacy, but there are skill sets in different industries that could be supporting our communities and getting them into the workforce, into different industries. We, I don't know about you all where you live, but here we're always talking about gaps in um, employment and skills. And we've got a prime group of folks in, in all of our communities that could be the next workforce in that space. Autumn, I want to bring in Eric Pinckney, who has worked with Integral for more than two decades. Eric, you've seen firsthand how these issues are top of mind for commercial developers including our firm. Autumn, your description of the community in, in Columbus certainly rings true here in, in Atlanta. And I look back at uh, when we did Centennial, of course, that was 25 years ago. And putting in new infrastructure, we were fortunate to be laying duck banks that carried power and some digital broadband. Fast forward to where we are in assembly today, north of the city. So I'm sorry, let me interrupt you for a second. Just so you know, assembly is our mixed-use development at the site of a former General Motors assembly plant on the north side of Atlanta. When completed, it will include more than 10 million square feet of corporate Class A office space, 
creative office space, multifamily housing, as in apartments, um, townhomes, and a host of retail uses. So I just wanted to take a, t a moment to make that clarification. Uh, go on, Eric. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Again, good fortune that we were near the railroad and Hotwire was bringing fiber optic broadband and the fact that we could offer a hundred gigabit service was uh, essential to third rail studios and, and ability to record and have broadband. And it's in fact, like you say, an essential. I, I've seen this occur where someone will pop up with their phone and if they can connect and get high speed, they'll hang around. If they can't, they're on to the next spot. So that's, again, a place where today it's real estate has changed. You will, in fact, not be able to attract rents, owners, or people to come to the office to the extent they come back to the office unless there's broadband. And you hit it also with the workforce. If your employees are working away, the fact that they have an ability to communicate with the office will be inessential. So to drive this question more specifically, how do we move from what was thought as social service to a profit-driven space? Inclusion, you know, back in the, on phones, you got um, those that sell, you know, AT&T and some of the big guys can charge here. But every, bit, every neighborhood has a, a, a cricket <laughs> and a Metro PCS as well. How do we move that kind of space into broadband? I mean, I think we push the market. That, I mean, that's what we're doing. We're pushing it and we're pushing it to respond. And nobody can argue with me about $15 a month as our pilot because I talk directly to the people. And I think that's, again, that, that sweet spot of, you know, we did a lot of planning around, oh no, we need to get, you know, Chromebooks out to every uh, child in our school district. We need to put up these hotspots, but not many people took the time to say, let me go ask people what they want and what they think they need. And I think that's part of it is we need to be talking to those prospective customers. I share my survey data with everybody. Um, I've shared it with AT&T and Bresco, which is a local company here and Spectrum and, and you name it um, and said, here's what I heard. And so if you don't respond to the market, then you're not going to get those customers. But the market told me $25 or less, and so we're doing a, a pilot at 15. And if people adopt in this direction of this new provider, it's going to push the market to respond, I think, in a more affordable rate. But you're right. There's a cricket and everybody else in between in our communities. And we know that that's a lower um, offering, right? So I don't want to disrupt anybody's business. That's also been my kind of cry this year, like, look, I'm just a little nonprofit leader trying to help the people on the near east side of Columbus. I'm not trying to, you know, push people away from your industry, but I'm going to push you to compete for their business. And I think that's what we do. So let's let's do this as we close this out. Uh, this was a meaty conversation. And Autumn, I, I really do appreciate what you've contributed to this conversation, not just because of what we're talking about right here now, but the implications of this, if we take it seriously and think about it, because I'm afraid that there are a lot of people that are going to still think this is optional. But what you have said that I think is very compelling and using different words, I would say you've really told us that there is a need for business models to be revisited. 
Because if you revisited your business model to understand that there is a way to capture significantly more market share out there because there are so many people that are not connected, then it starts to make sense. And it's not a social program. It's an economic or business-related decision that people are making. And that increased access has profound implications on the health and wealth of a lot of the communities that are right now locked out of the process. So I want to thank you. I hate that this conversation has to end, but it doesn't really end here. It'll continue in other ways. I want to thank you for your time. Eric Pinkney, thank you as well thank for you. your participation in this. I think this was a very instructive, and I hope our listeners got as much out of it as I got from having the chance to interview you. So thank you so much for that. Thank you very much. Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group 2020.